From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Venshi, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce the topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? Today, I'm all right. Um, there's been a lot that's happened since our last recording. It's been a few weeks. Yeah, it has been long. Uh, yeah, it's been like, so our borders have opened. We're currently getting towards the peak of our Omicron outbreak here in WA. <coughs> There's war in Europe. Zelensky is uh, being a fantastic model of leadership. Um, our first war in the age of TikTok, which is very interesting. Um, so, yeah, lots going on. Also, my air conditioning broke, so I'm currently um, sleeping on a mattress in the lounge room with a portable air conditioner, um, which is great, but, you know, minor in the grand scheme of things. Um Went to a wedding. That was nice. Yeah. Wow, lots going on. Lots going on. And uh, a little bit of 2021 creeping in there with your aircon breaking down. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. Should, we shouldn't have mentioned anything at the beginning of the year. No, it's your fault. Yeah, I'll take I'll take the blame for that. Good. No, no. Look, glad that you're doing well. Um, I'm doing better as well. Um, I have already successfully um, gotten and recovered from COVID. So. Well, the. You're sounding very nasally, so whether you've successfully recovered or not is still questionable. I think we could say that you have um, caught and are no longer infectious with. Yeah, and we're talking about before whether it was a um, sexy voice or not. Uh, and you said nasally's not horse is more the sexy voice. Yeah. Yeah. Not horse as in... Can't speak at all. Or, or the animal. No. No. Nay. Yeah. Yeah. Nay. <laughs> No, not like that. No. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, look, I'm sure I'll be fine. I know Alicia actually um, did a podcast with us a little time a while ago as she was on the back end of COVID as yes. well. She made yes. it through. I'm sure I'll be able to make it through and as we'll, well. And we'll let our listeners um, tell you whether your voice is sexy or not. Yeah, I know what that's going to come back. So <laughs> don't, don't worry about emailing in <laughs> listeners. Um, and we've got Jack on the back end who will be, you know, taking out any coughs or sneezes or anything like that. Yes. It will sound amazing, it this will, podcast episode. It will. There will be no coughs or sneezes. <laughs> um, speaking about this episode, we actually don't have a guest for this episode. Well, kind of like, well, we're both guests, I guess. We are. On this particular episode. Um, we've been thinking about it for a while, doing what we're calling, probably will become known as our expert series. So we're commonly talking to clients in market, Joelle, myself, Alicia in particular, and kind of uncovering what are some of the key issues or objections um, regarding psychosocial risk assessment and psychological health and safety. And um, we thought maybe what we could start to do is every so often do a talk just between Joelle, myself, and maybe Alicia from time to time uh, about some of the key questions that are coming up. So uh, this is really for those people who are trying to do this either internally or uh, as an external consultant, trying to work with your clients and, and work through some of these challenges that they're having. And hopefully what we'll be able to do is to maybe break down some of these things a bit more than what we get to do normally when we have a guest on the show. Yeah. 
So today, what we thought we'd really focus on is in Australia in particular, uh, there are new draft regulations that have been brought out by Victoria and we had Libby Brook from WorkSafe Victoria talk to those very recently. Uh, but maybe we, we thought we'd bring them out a bit more because we are also expecting Commonwealth draft regs very soon in the psychological health domain. Um, this isn't necessarily something that will affect all of our listeners worldwide, um, although you might be interested as a fly on the wall looking at what's happening in Australia because it could signal what might potentially happen in other markets uh, around the world. Uh, but obviously um, what we're talking about is best practice regarding psych health and safety anyway. Uh, and we'll talk also in today's episode regarding psychosocial risk assessment. It's something that we have spoken about previously on this, uh, but I don't think we can speak about it enough given that there's still a lot of uh, unknowns um, and differing advice going around the traps regarding what does the psychosocial risk assessment look like and what's the sort of time commitments associated with that and whatnot. Yeah, and I think um, even for those listeners outside of Australia, if you know if you are in a jurisdiction where general duties um, health and safety legislation applies, then you know a lot of what we'll be talking about in this episode will be relevant uh, for you anyway. Yeah, so Joelle. I guess the first question I have to ask you is with all these um, draft regulations coming out and codes of practice, we've had New South Wales and NWA most recently release codes of practice around psychosocial risk management. Why now? Why, why is this all happening at this point in time in our history? Um, because everything is garbage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, <clears throat> I mean, yes, everything is garbage a little bit. Um, look, I think in, in Australia we've got you know, a, a timeline of things that have happened since the Boland Review that have sort of led to this point um, where there's been an increasing awareness that, um, you know, we've got a growing mental health burden in Australia. Um, lots of the focus remains on downstream, so treating um, people once they're already unwell. Um, you know, a lot of that is focused on early identification um, and early treatment of symptoms, which is good and, and important. Um, but, you know, there's recognition that employers have a really big role to play in the prevention space. Uh, and, you know, what employers have been doing so far, typically, um, has been focused downstream on that, you know, encouraging people into treatment, giving them support through, you know, employee benefits such as EAP, um, you know, early identification and, and referral and that sort of thing and, and giving people those types of supports. Um, but that's that's not prevention. Um, and so, you know, as, as we know with physical health and safety, if the conditions that you're exposing your employees to in the workplace are making them sick, you have a legal and an ethical obligation to do your best to prevent that from happening. Yeah, and, and I've got to say, uh, I was just talking on a call I had with a client earlier today actually um, about this and uh, I think the reason that we have such an illness and individuals and symptoms focus is uh, from the public health approach and we do have some very well-funded and well-meaning uh, not-for-profits that work in the space um, and you know they are trying to raise awareness of what mental illnesses look like and pathways to treatment. Um, unfortunately you could say in Australia and we're hearing similar around the world access to treatment is actually becoming very difficult. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I think the um, there was recently the um, report released from the World Health Organisation um, reporting on the Global Burden of Disease Study for 2020, 
Um, so roughly a 25% increase in um, major depressive disorder and anxiety disorders globally, um, and that was in 2020. Um, and what this meant was a um, 253.2 additional disability adjusted life years per 100,000 population, um, which is just crazy i i don't know i don't have the words to describe that but you know 250 years of of disability adjusted life years um per yeah per 100,000 population is just horrible um so yeah i mean we can't just keep relying on people um sweeping up the mess um you know our clinical services have a really important role to play um, but we can't just keep relying on them to to solve the problems that um, you know a lot of the times have been created by poor employment conditions, um, you know, poor leadership, all of that sort of thing. Or you know, going further up, um, you know, public policy um, and and all of the implications that come along with that. So you know, we really do need to start thinking about upstream solutions thinking about prevention in a really um, a more systematic and, and structured way. Yeah, and I know we'll be preaching to the choir for most of our listeners, particularly those from a health and safety background, um, who would understand that injury and illness is more of a symptom of poorly designed or managed systems uh, rather than individual behaviour. Um, and so, yeah, going upstream and doing prevention um, is not just better for everyone's health and wellbeing, um, and preventing a lot of these illnesses and disability-adjusted life years, as you said. Um, but it also is much better bang for buck if you're thinking about your investment as an organisation. If you can prevent these things from happening, it costs a lot less doing that than sweeping up the mess, as you say. Yeah, I mean, and going, you know, going beyond that as well, you know, if, you do, if you're treating your employees well, they're more likely to stick around. Um, they're more likely to be productive. They're more likely to engage in organisational citizenship behaviour. Um, you know, so there's a lot of other reasons to to pay attention to this other than just, you know, what is your workers' compensation um, premium looking like? Yeah, and it, I, I really hope that given employees are starting to understand, well, you know, it's a pretty open environment in terms of work and I've got a lot of choice now in terms of I could be a freelancer and work anywhere around the world from my own home now. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go work for an employer who actually does care about me um, and I'm not going to put up with this rubbish. So people are starting to see that more and more. And so therefore organisations are you know, more so forced to consider the working conditions and how they're supporting people to thrive. Or, it wasn't that or, um, or they just complain that nobody wants to work anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So hopefully they start to understand um, the, the benefits of doing this and not just, you know, this is another burden or another responsibility that we've got that we don't want to do or we just want to tick the box rather than doing it properly and actually understanding or realising all the benefits that we're talking about. Because it wasn't that long ago when it was a different market, particularly here in, in Western Australia, uh, when, you know, there is we're such a resource-reliant state, um, when there is a boom or commodity prices are high, um, all of the resource companies start to employ uh, and they typically pay very well and there can be, um, yeah, there's lots of jobs and, and, uh, and other opportunities. When there's not so many jobs uh, going around, then the employers become, I guess, more 
able to um, pay less or provide less benefits or, you know, have lower levels of turnover because people can't just move to another position that's paying better or offering better, better benefits. And uh, it wasn't that long ago when I was in the room with a senior health, uh, a human resources leader who had commissioned myself to come in and do a audit regarding the different stresses um, that people were experiencing. And, um, you know, there was some things that, that came up and um, she basically said to me, Jason, we've got 1% turnover. You know, who cares if people burn out? Like, we can just replace them tomorrow with someone else. There's lots of people that want to work here. Was she, like, wearing a monocle and rubbing her hands together and, like, did she have a fluffy white cat in her lap? Yeah, she could definitely be a Dr. Evil type or a Cruella type yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know... Wearing a coat of puppy fur, yeah. I really hope that's not... And, and look, I should say, I know that's not the majority of people who think that way. Um, but what I'm hoping is that the silver lining of, of COVID and the pandemic, people are understanding mental health is important and it is good business practice to do workplace mental health and deal with psychosocial hazards um, well. Yeah, and, you know, I mean... In, yeah, in terms of drivers, um, now is the time that employers are going to be most driven to um, to do something about this. Um, and I guess we can just hope that um, when, you know, when the situation changes and potentially, you know, the job market b- moves back into a position that favours employers, um, that they don't scale back what they're doing in this space. Yeah, and I guess here in Australia, we will in the future have you know, rigorous legislation that's hopefully got lots of case studies of it being enforced as well. Yeah. Um, that will demonstrate to employers that they can no longer just ignore this. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons for having the legislation in place because when those um, those market drivers um, ease off, um, you you still need the, the laws in place to, to maintain a certain level of performance. Yeah, that's right. So, um, Joel, one of the questions that we get asked, particularly pertaining to legislation is how does, I guess, the new draft regulations here in Australia and the codes of practice differ to ISO 45003? Um, Yeah, so I guess the main difference is in um, the requirements for their application. So all of the ISO standards are voluntary standards, so companies can choose whether or not they want to adopt them. Um, And, you know, there are various implications um, for adoption of standards depending on, you know, what industry you're in. Um, supply chain and all of that kind of thing. Um, so there can be um, significant benefits in achieving certification um, to an ISO standard. Um, but even if you don't actually need certification, um, there are definitely benefits to having a system that's aligned to an ISO standard as well. Um, and I think what a lot of research has shown is that companies will sort of get to the point where they've got their systems aligned to a standard and then, you know, the, the benefits of actually having certification um, unless you're actually in a, you know, somewhere in the middle of a supply chain, um, there's not that much benefit in, in having the certification. Um, but, yeah, so any, any ISO standard is voluntary. Um, I guess it represents – and, you know, we've had people um, on in our very early days of the podcast talking about um, their contributions to the development of the standards. So, you know, it is developed by a committee of global representatives. Um, so, you know, there's um, always going to be, you know, decision-making and trade-offs that go into um, the development of that type of a, um, 
a document when you do have that many different stakeholders from um, so many different, you know, countries and um, different interests and different um, political motivations for contributing um, without having been involved. Um, that's probably all that I can say about that. And even if I had been involved, I probably wouldn't be able to say anything about that. Um, so I guess, you know, recognising some of the, um, the the practicalities of what that kind of a standard actually results from um, is important to bear in mind. So when we look at something like regulations, um, you know, these are typically um, drafted by they might be drafted by a regulator or they might be um, drafted by, you know, a um, department sort of bureaucrats um, with input from a regulator. Um, so they tend to be um, more focused on the, um, I guess, the, the relevant information for for their particular jurisdiction. Um, you know, what are the issues that, are, that they're experiencing? Um, what are things that are being reported to them? Um, so they can be, I think, a lot more targeted. Um, and certainly while there is still a political layer over anything uh, relating to regulation, um, there's probably not as much in the way of, of trade-offs as, as you would with that sort of international approach um, with, with ISO. Uh, so I think with, with regs what we would see is a lot more focused um, in terms of what they're requiring um, their employers to do. Um, and then codes of practice, um, so, so regulations are sort of, you know, mandatory, you need to demonstrate that you're complying with those regulations. Um, and then codes of practice are a way for the regulator to put forward essentially a sort of a baseline of performance expectation um, about how you're going to meet the regulation or the, or the act um, requirements. And so um, these documents can become um, evidence in um, court proceedings, in prosecutions, to say that this is actually the established um, minimum requirement. So as an employer, you essentially need to be able to demonstrate that what you're doing either complies with that code of practice or is better than or equal to that code of practice in terms of the outcomes that you're delivering. Um, so, yeah, I guess in terms of um, enforceability, if you like, it starts, you know, the Act is the... Um, the most important component of the legislation, the regulations give greater instruction around how to meet your duties in the Act and then the Code of Practice essentially provides an example of how you can go about meeting your, um, your duties under the Act and the regulations, um, but you can choose your own adventure, if you like, um, with, with the Code of Practice as long as you're demonstrating that you, you're meeting the requirements within there. So for, for a company that decided they wanted to um, adopt ISO 45003, where they do have clear legal requirements, um, would if they were to adopt ISO 45003, would it meet their legal requirements in most instances? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you for the most part, like so the Victorian regs, um, for example, have a requirement for um, action plans... Uh, to be put in place where um, organisations have identified particular psychosocial hazards. Um, so that's not something that's covered in 45,003. So there will be um, sort of... Um, Nuances. Yeah. Um, 
that that won't be covered by forty five thousand and three. But in terms of actually the the general duties to identify hazards, assess risks, put control measures in place, you know, do the plan, do check act thing that's sort of embedded in your um, in your safety management system or in any of your risk management systems. Um, if you've got those processes in place. Um, for psychosocial hazards as well, then you're going to be well on your way to meeting the majority of your duties under the legislation. Yeah, great. Yeah, so um, that that is what I had in, uh, had understood. So great that I've got that, that same understanding as you. Uh, but that question does come up a lot, so um, hopefully that helps with some of our listeners. Um, now, do you believe the regulations, codes of practice, put new obligations on employers that weren't previously there? Um. I think that they clarify the obligations that have already been there. Um, you know, certainly the duty to protect um, employees from health and safety hazards um, has always been there. Um, the recognition that that also includes psychological or psychosocial hazards, um, I suppose, is a relatively new idea. Um, so... You know, I'm, I'm sure that there are people out there who argue uh, about whether or not that requirement has always been there or not. I guess the point is that, you know, when you're talking about health um, and we've got, you know, globally recognised definitions of health, for example, from the World Health Organisation that includes psychological health, um, Yeah, I suppose, th- yeah, there's people who could say that, you know, the um, the regulators by suddenly deciding that, yeah, now we're going to include psychological health um, when we're saying that you have these general duties um, is potentially shifting the goalposts. Um, so that's maybe why we're now moving to a, um, a position where we've got specific regulations um, to make it more clear um, to employers that, these duties do actually include um, psychological health as well. Um, you know, other other jurisdictions are just making changes to the Act um, and including, you know, the um, in their definition of health, for example, um, that that includes psychological health. So that's another um, another way that um, regulators are able to approach this. Yeah, and I got to say, from the regulators, we're getting a clear indication that these will be not just more enforceable, but will be enforced. Uh, I mean, if we think about Libby, she was the first person that worked safe Victoria kind of brought into a specialised role regarding psychological health. She's now got five psychologists in her team and they're recruiting two more. Mm. Um, so they're definitely building up competence and capability um, within their, their teams. Yeah, I mean, and the same goes here in WA as well with um, Dimmers. Um, they've been recruiting uh, quite heavily in this space and um, certainly you know, feedback that we've had from um, from clients and people in industry that we've been talking to is that um, demurs have been um, paying close attention to what they're doing in this space as well. Um, and so, um, you know, taking action that's not able to be made public, um, but in terms of, you know, receiving notices or instructions from the regulator that they need to uh, be taking action in this space. So, yeah, th- that's the feedback that we've had from a number of different um industry contacts in WA. Yeah. So um, besides the need to, I guess, notify the regulators of specific hazards, like sexual harassment, for example, um, 
is what what are the other kind of main components of of the regs and the codes that employers need to be mindful of and make sure they've got a, a, a process for yeah so um essentially identify that, that you know it's, it's the same as it is with your with your physical health and safety um requirements you need to identify your hazards you need to put controls in place to address the risks associated with those hazards. You need to monitor the effectiveness of them, um, you know, and you need to maintain that um, process of continuous improvement. Yeah. So I guess that's um, the, the next part of what we wanted to discuss today. I mean, how can companies take that plan, do, check, act approach um, and particularly meet their, their legal obligations that are obviously, particularly in Australia, going to be far more enforceable? Yeah. Um, so... I guess drawing on that, um, why do you think that organisations aren't actually already doing this typically um, in terms of that, that proactive you know, hazard identification and risk assessment approach? Well, to quote a really intelligent person, I know everything is garbage. <laughs> um, so the, the tools, I think, that are currently in existence that claim to be psychosocial risk assessments a garbage. Uh, a garbage. They yeah. have not changed in 20 years. Um, I mean, if you think about the HSE stress indicator tool, for example, it's probably the first popular example of a psychosocial risk assessment. Um, but really, they don't give the information required to satisfactorily understand and then address risks and, and monitor them over time. Um, these tools are typically employ perception style measures, um, which I'll say when trying to understand psychosocial risk is very dumb um, in that they don't great, give us great information um, to understand the likelihood that someone is going to have an adverse psychological health reaction based on hazard exposure to psychosocial hazards uh, we need to understand the severity frequency and duration of exposure to that hazard if all we're getting from a employee perception style survey um, from a risk assessment is you know do you work to demanding deadlines or do you work very fast and you have to, uh, you know, respond on a like-it-type style response, seven-point scale, let's say, from strongly agree to strongly disagree? It doesn't tell you the severity of the stress experienced based on that element of work design. doesn't give you the frequency and duration of stress because we know that people have different preferences, right? Some people like a heavy workload. Some people like to just be told what to do. Yet we automatically assume that, work overload or um, lack of um, uh, autonomy um, are hazards and, and people will experience stress based on exposure to that. So these tools are dumb in that they don't pick up on that nuance that people have different working style preferences and not all work design elements will affect people in the same way. Um, and if all we're getting as an outcome from these measures is, hey, on a seven-point rating scale, you got 5.1, and we're going to compare you to a benchmark, which is across industries, um, and the benchmark, let's say, is 5.2. What do you do with that information? What does it tell you? It just tells you that maybe you're doing slightly better than a benchmark, but what does a benchmark mean? Um, on that result, what's the likelihood um, and consequence of harm? Well, it doesn't tell you that. So really, um, I would say that these tools are not psychosocial risk assessments. At the, the very best, I would say, they're hazard identification so it might give you some idea about what are the main hazards that are present in different work environments. But to understand the risk, then you have to then really unpack the results of those surveys in focus groups or interviews. And then you end up with a qualitative risk assessment. So we might as well go, 
Look our finger, put it up in the air and go, okay, well, on this quadrant, we believe the risk is there. Um, and the problem is when you take that sort of information up to a board or exec level, and you go, based on our focus groups, these are the main hazards that we identified. Um, it's hard to then go, well, is this actually quantifiable data? Is this a real risk that we're seeing here? Or is it a bunch of people who had nothing better to do on a Wednesday afternoon and had a free afternoon tea and they just want to have a bit of a whinge? Yeah, so I think for, for me, um, when we think about this methodology of doing a, you know, essentially a work factors survey, because that's what it is, you're mm. assessing work factors, you're not assessing hazard or risk. Um, and then you're following that up with workshops that people are volunteering to participate in. And then while they're participating, they're also volunteering how much they want to share about their experience. Um, and if you think about all of the different influences that that um, come into play there when somebody's deciding what they want to talk about, um, you know, you've got significant questions then about well, how representative actually is this information that we've collected from these focus groups. Um, I would say um, anecdotally that people who are more likely to participate are probably those people who are less vulnerable in terms of mental health, um, certainly less vulnerable in relation to the organisational um, pressures on, on mental health. Um, so, for example, people who have potentially experienced um, harassment or bullying, particularly from a top-down perspective, will be less likely to participate. Uh, people who have experienced organisational injustice will be less likely to participate. Um, unless you've got people who are just so angry that they're ready to essentially um, blow the place up figuratively, not literally, um, then they might, you know. So, But again, then you're potentially getting a skewed um, response there as well of people who are incredibly dissatisfied, um, you know, who have potentially secured another job and are, yeah, really ready to just um, burn burn that bridge right down. Yeah, so we see a lot of problems with that approach and then that creates, for those people who've had that experience, often this is just done once because it's so distasteful and leaves such a bad taste in their mouth, I should say, that they're like, oh, that was horrible, that process, I don't want to do that ever again. Um, and so often then, you know, the alternative is a top-down risk assessment where we just get a bunch of people in the room and we go, okay, well, what are our main hazards? Um, let's think about the controls that we've already got in place. And then you end up with a risk register that has psychosocial hazards as the hazard, not a specific one. It's just like a, a group term for all things that cause work-related stress. Um, and then you go, well, these are existing controls. Well, we have EAP. We have uh, lunch and learns every now and again. We have policies around bullying and sexual harassment and you know, paid time off work and those sorts of things. And they'll be like, great, so we understand the we have hazards or, or risks. We're saying that's a two on our five-point you know, likelihood consequence um, uh, risk, and we're saying that these are our controls. Um, it's not really understanding your hazards and addressing the risks systemically. It's going, this is what we've already done. So we're talking about a top-down risk assessment that really just doesn't really give you much detail, and then you end up with global-level controls that, you know, are they really effective or not? We don't really know. Yeah, and so, you know, that's that's essentially akin to doing one one risk assessment across an entire, you know, plant or construction site or something like that um, where we know that we actually need to do a risk assessment on different activities. You know, you can't just do one global activity for an entire um, location. Um, you do actually need to, okay, well, we're working at height. 
But even then, well, what is the particular job? What is the height that we're working at? What are the, you know, what are the conditions around that? Um, and actually looking at it at a job level, um, you know, you, you can't just do a global risk assessment and be done with it. You, you do actually need to get into the nuances of the activities and jobs that are being conducted, understand what the hazard profiles are for those jobs and make sure that your control measures are targeted to those unique um, hazard profiles. Yeah, and these um, top-down risk assessments don't understand that the workplace uh, and the environment is dynamic. It changes every day, um, and that's why before doing hazardous tasks, you know, people in these roles generally have to do a risk assessment before they do any activity to ensure that they're noticing any things that have changed in the work environment since they were last there, mm. uh, and there's thorough handovers as well. Yep. Um, so if you're doing a once-a-year top-down risk assessment, you're really not understanding that workplaces are very dynamic. I mean, if anything, the pandemic should show us that a lot can happen in 12 months. So if your cadence for doing a top-down risk assessment is 12 to 18 months, you're missing out on a lot of hazards and a lot of um, potential psychosocial injury um, concerns. Yeah, and again, if, you, you know, if all you're doing is a top-down assessment, um, you're really not um, doing you're not even doing a good hazard identification, let alone a risk assessment, because you. It's, this really needs to be a a bottom-up approach where you're doing really um, consultation in breadth and in depth um, because you don't know the, the tolerances of your workforce, um, you know. So it's... Because individual factors have such a significant role to play here, um, you know, and the, the interaction between the workplace and the individual factors is significant. Um, and if you don't do a really good consultation, then you're not going to know what are the hazards that are actually creating the greatest levels of distress for your work and what are the hazards that are actually creating the greatest risk of psychological injury in your employees. The only way that you can, you can get there is to do a really good quality consultation. Yeah, and that's again, you know, I guess why we started on our journey, right, with with Flourish. Yeah. Um, so how I wasn't here when you started Flourish DX. I've only been here for a year. Um, so can you? It feels like a lot longer. I know. I know. It feels like it's been a billion years. Um, how did you start with Flourish DX? Um, well, I guess back in two thousand seventeen eighteen, um, kind of I saw what really prompted. Um, the recommendation in the Boulder review that you rec you referred to earlier. So for those listeners who aren't aware, we have referenced it on previous episodes, but the Boland review was a review by Marie Boland of the Workplace Health and Safety Act um, and what needed to be updated to, I guess, address current concerns and um, changes um, in Australia. And uh, out of 34 recommendations, the second recommendation was to have regulations that dealt specifically with psychological health. Um we have relied on a general definition of health for quite a while that was always supposed to um, address both physical and mental, but um, uh, you know, employees didn't read it that way and it wasn't very enforceable by the regulators either. Um, but back about the same time that she was doing that review, um, you know, I was observing that there was a rapidly increasing frequency and duration of psychological injury claims being made in, in Australia. Um, I knew that the current approaches to psychosocial risk assessment using these employee perception style surveys, just it wasn't getting traction. Um, I knew that in 2018, the ISO 45003 standard, that would be the first international standard to be internationally agreed upon on what was best practice, uh, was starting to be worked on. And I knew given that it was a child standard of ISO 45001, 
there was going to be a real focus on uh, risk management and continuous improvement, which is different to the popular methods of the day and the popular methods still exist today, uh, which is more downstream and focuses on individuals and symptoms. Uh, so I knew if we were going to have impact at scale and really get companies to start to take a more systemic um, risk approach to psychological health and safety, there needed to be an enterprise tool that felt as you know, nice and intuitive as any other kind of enterprise tool that was in use, whether that was an employee engagement survey or a safety management system or risk reporting system or something like that. There needed to be a, a bespoke tool for this. And I guess um, when we started, um, we actually started working with a local university here um, uh, on the first iteration of what the risk assessment would look like. Um, and it did very much take that employee perception style methodology. We called it the work design survey and it still exists within Flourish DX because some people still like to ask those, those style of questions. Um, but what we quickly learnt was, you know, not only were we not getting the right information out of this and we really had to rely heavily on the focus groups to actually inform the risk assessment rather than the survey, um, but also there was a lot of objections when you started to bring that into a workplace and then HR would review it and say, well, look, this is actually very similar to our employee engagement survey. Why don't we just use that or expand upon that? Um, and so, you know, we really had to start thinking, well, this isn't cutting it. Uh, it's a really um, time-intensive activity. We're talking generally 20, 30 minutes plus and, you know, things like people at work, for example, is a, you know, easily 30, 40-minute survey, if not longer. Um, needs to be more time efficient. We need to get better data. Um, we need to get through some of these objections that we might have with HR. So how can we address that? And I guess um, you actually came on board, Joel, in February of last year when we were like, really wrestling with some of these things, understanding that the work design survey wasn't cutting it and what we were going to do. And um, it was interesting because at the time we'd, we'd been working, we have a, a school-based product, right, called Flourishing at School, and the school-based product is actually where we started um, with the technology front anyway. And we realised that when COVID hit and a lot of schools started going to remote education, that there was a need for them to be able to do pastoral care, so check in with students whilst they were doing school from home uh, because typically pastoral care would you'd be able to walk past a student in your classroom and you know be able to see whether they're their usual self or not and be able to um, have, a, have a conversation. So we had this um, tool that we created in response to that, which we called the wellbeing check-in. Um, that would get people to, first of all, on a Likert-type style response with emojis uh, representing mood, get people to check in with how they feel. But the, the important part was to then reflect on what are the personal factors that are influencing how I feel, but then also what are the school-related factors, you know, whether that's exam pressure or whether it's that you miss your friends or whether it's that you know, you've got um, relationship issues with a, a teacher, for example. You know, what are the factors both from that individual and the system perspective that are influencing how I feel. Um, and that was, um, you know, really effective for schools at the time to be able to get a pulse on, on how students were, were doing. But then we thought, well, if all we're doing from the work design survey is helping us to identify hazards, and it's taking us 20 to 30 minutes to do that, could we use something like the wellbeing check-in, which is a 30-second tool, to be able to get the same level of information? And long story short, the answer is yes. <laughs> So I actually believe you can get better information um, from this 30-second assessment than you can from, say, a 30-minute um, psychosocial risk assessment using employee perception style methodology. Um, so that's good because that means you can collect that data more frequently. Um, so most companies who use the bulky risk assessments do, you know, only do it on a 12- to 18-month cadence because it takes so long. 
um, or they time it in with their employee engagement survey and do it that way. And so it's you, you don't really get to monitor the hazards as they're emerging. Um, you can't see whether your controls are being effective in a timely manner. You've got to wait for the next cadence of surveys. So it's uh, much better in terms of the cadence of data. It's only 30 seconds. Um, the data is reported live. It doesn't take you weeks or months to review the data and then report down and do your next level of consultation. Um, we've had it before where, you know, we presented to um, a, a new company who was starting to use the tool and they had 20 people on the call. So I got all 20 of them to grab out their phones, do the wellbeing check-in on the call. Um, we identified that out of the 26 had responded negatively to the check-in and four of them said that isolated work was contributing to them having that negative check-in. Um, so talking about, you know, the, the goal of psych health and safety, it's to identify what are the hazards that are having a negative impact on people's psychological health. Well, in 30 seconds, we identified, well, there's a systemic issue here, isolated work. Um, that was in peak lockdown in New South Wales, by mm. the way. It, you know, it had been for, for months. But that then was enough for the line manager to say, well, okay, well, this is clearly not just one person's inability to cope. This is a problem with how we're doing work currently. So how could we make people feel more connected uh, whilst working remotely? So we're talking about it being quite an agile way of doing psychosocial risk assessment. All the data is there, available after a few, you know, 30 to 60 seconds. You can bring it up and have that conversation within a team and address it at that team level. Again, not at a global level, you're actually dealing with the issues for the team. Um, so we kind of stumbled across that methodology because of the work that we're doing in schools. Uh, but we've just been really surprised with how effective that is at that first step of that risk management process, you know, identifying the, the hazards. Yeah, so that, that's a really important point to make there is that it is we're only identifying hazards at this point. We're not actually understanding the risk associated with those hazards. So they may be the hazards that are front of mind for people. Um, on a particular day when they're doing the check-in, not necessarily the hazards that are actually creating the risk of psychological injury. Yeah, and we're not understanding the likelihood and, and ultimate consequence of that hazard exposure either. It's just in that moment, this is what people are feeling and these are the things that are contributing. Mm. But like I said, if all we're getting from a 30-minute long employee perception style survey is a list of the main hazards that are present that we then need to unpack within a focus group, why not use a 30-second assessment to do yeah. that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, as you said, um, one of the things that we started to talk about when I joined was how can we actually do this better? How can we get um, more usable data um, that does actually speak to risk rather than just talking about work factors that are high or low compared to a norm? Yeah, that's right. And um, I guess that, that was the next part of it, right? We thought, well, at scale, companies aren't going to want people all of their employees after doing a 30-minute long survey to then sit in a two-hour focus group to unpack the results and come up with that qualitative risk assessment. Uh, and if you think these numbers are off, just look at the regulatory impact statement written by Deloitte for the draft regs in, in Victoria. They're estimating two and a half hours of, of time per employee to do your consultation requirements on an annual basis. Mm. Um, we don't think it needs to take that long um, because Joelle and I were thinking, well... At scale, you're not going to get that commitment from companies. You're not going to be able to do the focus groups with every single employee. Um, what are we trying to get? What's the information we're trying to get out of a focus group? Well, what we're trying to do for each of the identified hazards is to identify the severity of that. So to what, what impact is that having on people's psychological health in terms of making them feel stressed or overwhelmed or you know, needing to take off time off work? What is the frequency, though, that that is occurring? And then what is the duration of that exposure as well? 
And so we thought, well, we're not getting that information from the work design survey. Why don't we create another type of assessment that can be rolled out at scale to collect that information? And that's where our work factors risk assessment was born out of. Um, and so we thought, well, if uh, the wellbeing check-in, if we run that two or three times, if we can identify our main hazards from that, because if it's consistent or, you know, the same things are coming up, well, that's uh, hazard identification done. Um, then we can really tailor and ask follow-up questions just regarding those main hazards. So instead of having, you know, a survey that has to include every psychosocial hazard under the sun because you don't want to miss anything, you actually have a clear idea of what they are based on a few wellbeing check-ins that have taken a few minutes of people's time over, the, over a few months. Let's now um, ask follow-up questions just on that. So it might only be a five to ten minute risk assessment rather than a 30 minute risk assessment. But for each of those, we ask on a 10 point rating scale, to what degree is this having a negative impact on you, making you feel stressed, overwhelmed, angry or upset? noting that not everyone experiences the same response to a psychosocial hazard. Um, then also then what is the frequency of that exposure on a 10-point rating scale and then what is the duration. Um, so automatically we're actually getting a lot better information from every individual than what we would with an employee perception style survey. So rather than you know three or four questions to cover a construct like work overload, um, so questions like you know, I have to work to demanding deadlines or I have to work very fast and people answering strongly agree to strongly disagree and you get kind of like this rating well, workload appears to be somewhere you know, that's low, medium or high. We're getting severity, frequency and duration of that hazard exposure as it pertains to that individual's response to that hazard. So it's a lot smarter in that sense and you're getting three data points for every hazard rather than one. Um, now, what is the true innovation within Flourish DX is what's coming up next as we start to build predictive algorithms regarding that risk. So everyone who participates in Flourish DX, under, unlike something like a people at work, which is completely anonymous, they do it through a username. So from our end, we can actually uh, um, link people's data from survey to survey longitudinally. Um, and so three to six months post people doing a risk assessment, we're asking them questions around burnout, you know, time taken off work due to work-related stress, um, around psychological distress. Um, and we're building a predictive algorithm that will actually tell um, uh, the likelihood and consequence of harm based on how a group of people have responded to that work factors risk assessment for each of the identified hazards or each of the hazards that we've assessed, plus what is the cumulative risk based on the interaction of those hazards together. Um, and ideally what we want to get to is uh, quantitatively... Um, being able to say to an employer, well, you'll have a risk score out of 100, which was 80. Now, we know, um, based on all of our data sets, that if a company has a risk score out of 80, then that means that if you don't do anything in the next six months, 30% of your employees are going to experience burnout. 20% of people are going to take time off work due to work-related stress. 2% of people are going to make a psychological injury claim through workers' compensation. Um, so that then, I believe, will actually be the first true psychosocial risk assessment because it will give you the outcome that you expect from a, a risk assessment that is likelihood and consequence of harm. And you can imagine if you feed that up to an exec or board level, they then truly understand the risk and then they can determine their risk threshold. They might go, oh, we're comfortable with that. You know, it's an employer's market and, you know, people will burn out. That's fine. But if they're really um, thinking about um, their their duties as directors of a, of a business going, well, actually, we have a legal and moral obligation to protect the health and well-being of our, our workers and we're not comfortable with that. Well, how do we get to a level of 70 out of 100 instead of 80 out of 100? And what does that mean in terms of predicted outcomes for our people? Um, so 
that is really exciting. I think it's the first time we've actually shared that with mm. with um, the listeners, and that's probably because we're so close to being able to release it that no one's going to be able to duplicate what we're doing in terms of our methodology um, before we get that out. Um, so yeah, really excited to share. That's where we're going with Forest DX, and um, yeah, it is, it is really. Um, very different to how we've done psychosocial risk assessment in the past, both in terms of the time saving, both in terms of the data that we're collecting, and then that predictive analytics is the next level that we really need to get to. Yeah. Um, so I think probably important to note around the um, confidentiality. So while at our end we're able to do that sort of um, tracking um, and, and longitudinal analysis and comparisons, um, for the employer, they're not able to track or monitor individual employee responses. Yeah, that's right. And that was really important to us, right? If people are going to be participating in something that is you know, often perceived as a very sensitive topic, they needed to be able to do so anonymously. Now, um, we do uh, share with employers if people have completed the risk assessment or not, uh, but we only share de-identified aggregate data once a minimum of eight people have responded and, you know, we work with companies to, you know, create filters that reflect their company structure and locations so that they can really filter down and start to compare between groups and go, is this a global issue that we're experiencing or is it relevant only for certain roles or areas of the business? We, we call it, I mean, if you think about the occupational hygiene approach, it's, it's kind of like similar exposure groups. You're identifying, well, are there groups that experience this more so than others? Um, and so... Yeah, it's, but it always has to be that minimum of eight people to be able to see de-identified aggregate data to protect the individual's anonymity. Um, and, and the beauty is, again, all of the data is reported live. Um, so for ultimate transparency, what we actually suggest to companies is best practice is to do this not like a employee engagement survey and just email blast everyone and ask them to participate. You're going to get very low levels of engagement if you do it that way. But within a dedicated time with the team, whether that's over um, you know, a, a, a dedicated team's um, call or whether that's you know, live in person, which is happening less and less these days, actually set aside some time to do it. Again, it only takes five or ten minutes. But have the dashboard open live. Um, and the line managers all will only get access to their team through our um, platform. So you could have your team data up live. You can share the results and go, okay, these are the key things that are coming up. We're going to have a further look at this data, though. We'll come back to you. We'll do some further conversations and then start thinking about our action plan. Um, so it really makes the whole risk management approach uh, a lot quicker, not just in terms of the time per employee, but you've got the data available immediately. You don't have to have someone spend two or three months analysing it, presenting it back, by which time maybe the issues have changed and the data's old. You can do it in the room. Uh, and in fact, we've had some of our clients who have already, you know, within a half-day workshop done their risk assessment, done the follow-up, what does this mean, creating an action plan. That's all everyone signed off on within yeah. a half-day workshop. Yeah, and so when we talk about, you know, issues or, or um, barriers, um, you know, and survey fatigue often comes up as, as one of the barriers, um, you know, I think it's – this is a really key aspect of that is that, you know, people can actually see their results immediately – um, if, if you're doing it in this way where you're actually setting aside time, dedicated time, which you should be because it's a risk assessment, it's not an engagement survey, you don't allow people to decide whether or not they want to participate in a safety risk assessment. It should be the same for a psychosocial risk assessment that people actually are required to participate in that. Um, they can see their results immediately and they're engaged in 
talking about those results immediately and yeah ideally they're actually contributing to solutions and they can see those solutions being formulated and implemented very soon after participating so that really takes away the survey fatigue because the the fatigue is more about I'm continually being asked to contribute my time to give information to my employer and then either they do nothing with it or by the time they give me some feedback the only feedback is here's the results um, I don't really see what they're going to be doing with it or if they do do something with it, it's already six months down the line and, and you know, things have changed since then. Um, so I think that the really um, the visibility of their results and the ability to turn those results into actions very quickly um, really takes away that, um, that challenge around survey fatigue. Yeah, so we've said that I think before on, on the show that it's not the surveys that call fatigue, it's the people who are running the surveys poorly yeah. <laughs> that, that, that do that. So, yeah, if you can do the survey live in the room, share results immediately and start taking the follow-up consultation steps in the room, uh, that's perfect in terms of people actually feeling I'm being heard and something's being done about it. Um, another uh, issue we're coming across I guess when talking about Flourish DX is sometimes objections regarding pricing. Um, so some companies say, well, we don't have a budget. And in fact, for many companies that haven't had a psychosocial risk management approach before, it's a new budget item. They've never actually spent money in this area. Mm. Um, and that's why we we're conscious to go, well, we've spoken about it. I'm not going to go into detail about it today because we've spoken about this maturity mm. continuum that we see companies are on. Um, and a lot of companies, you know, they're just starting to recognise that mental health is good business, um, and, but they're, they're really focusing on that self-care. And we see that really as pushing responsibility for risk management down to the individual rather than thinking about your role of, oh, as an employer to create a healthy environment where people don't get ill in the first place. Um, but to that point, you know, there's other things that companies are looking at servicing employees with um, in relation to mental health. Uh, one of those is to create mental health awareness uh, through education. Um, and another bit is through, uh, you know, the provision of self-care resources like access to mindfulness, access to, you know, um, interactive activities that people can do to practice self-care better. And, and that's one of the reasons people have asked me before, you know, Jason, you know, if the risk management stuff is so innovative and, you know, that's the stuff that you really want to focus on, why are you doing all this other stuff around, you know, e-learning and, you know, self-care and mindfulness as well? Uh, and one of the reasons is that you know companies often don't have budget for the risk management stuff, but they have budget for the other stuff, either through their learning and development budget or through their HR and wellbeing budgets. So if you can combine those budgets together that you have, then you can actually buy a tool that services all of the requirements that you might have in a business um, uh, that, that you're already maybe spending you know multiples on in terms of having multiple vendors that you're dealing mm. with and multiple subscriptions to different services. So we're like, well, why not just combine everything into the one? Um, so for those out there, they're listening, um, you know, that is something also to keep in mind um, when considering Flourish DX um, and where you might be able to get the budget from in your organisation. Um, there's probably already a budget out there for, you know, wellbeing type uh, activities and for um, e-learning um, or other training regarding mental health awareness. Yeah, um, I think the other um, important point there is that, you know, that mental health is a shared responsibility. Um, and so, yes, employees um, do have an obligation to take steps to maintain their own mental health. Um, so it, it is about still providing the tools and, um, and supports 
for employees to be able to do that um, and, you know, evidence-based tools and supports as well, I think, um, is, is an important point to add to that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, i got to say, Alicia has formed the brunt of a lot of that. Um, when we said, okay, well, we do want to have a good mindfulness library because we know that is a good evidence-based approach to deal with stress. Um, Alicia was the one that had to make sure that it really cut the mustard in terms yep. of not being airy, fairy, fluffy meditation stuff, but really had a strong psychological basis uh, to that. So thank you, Alicia, if you're listening to this <laughs> podcast episode <laughs> for doing that. That was many, many months just to create 30 mindfulness activities uh, yep. in, in, in the app. Yes, it ended up being a larger project than we'd anticipated. Yeah, absolutely. The, turns out you uh, can't just buy uh, mindfulness meditations. There's a lot of work that has to go into them to make sure that they are um, evidence-based and actually helping people to practice elements of mindfulness in a scientifically reliable way. <laughs> and uh, not every voiceover person can read a mindfulness track. No, that's, talent is hard to find, yes. absolutely. Um, so that's probably uh, enough. I think that's, you know, I think for many of our listeners, hopefully they got a bit of value out of that, getting being able to explore the topic more in depth than what we have and maybe even talking a bit more about what we actually do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if uh, listeners haven't got tired of our marketing and uh, want to find out more about Flourish DX and, and the tools that are available, where can they go? Uh, so on top of the podcast, our other education channel is our 45003 Academy, available at www.45003.org. Uh, you'll notice not only is there a foundations course on the standard, uh, there is also activities like creating a business case for psych health and safety and uh, also one on how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment where we talk through our methodology and the tools that I've referenced on this podcast episode as well. So that's probably a really good course to do if you're interested. Um, the other thing is uh, you may or may not have heard before that we do now have a free version of Flourish DX available, uh, Flourish DX Basic. Uh, all you need to do to get into it, you can add up to 12 um, people on one account so you can actually start to use these tools within small teams. Um, is go to www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Uh, we will put links in our show notes to these plus some of the other resources that we've spoken about. But um, you can get in and, and start using the resources there. So I think that's it for today, Joelle, um, given that you have no follow-up questions. <laughs> um, so I guess uh, just to remember that we do video these things uh, when we talk through them on the podcast. So you will be able to see this video uh, up on the Flourish DX YouTube channel. Uh, there should be a clip or two that we'll be sharing on the Flourish DX LinkedIn page as well. Um, but please do check out the resources in the show notes. Um, there's probably some good links and further learning that you could do from there. And if you've got any um, questions or um, uh, any input for further expert series sessions between myself, Joelle and Alicia, feel free to email us or slide into our DMs on LinkedIn. But that's it for today. Uh, we'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.